Welcome to Future Perspectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. I'm your host, Gabby Sanderson, and I'm here to talk with international film stars, upcoming talent, and industry game changers. Over the Future Perspectives series, you will discover secret stories and inspiring perspectives on the future of cinema culture and society. So let's begin. This is Future Spectives. Shalu Guo, welcome to the Future Spectives podcast, which is the in-house Locarno Film Festival podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation very much. Thank you. You're a novelist, memoirist and filmmaker who explores migration, alienation, memory personal journeys, feminism, translation, and transnational identities. You describe yourself as a wanderer, uprooted and displaced, a nomad in both body and mind. Well, I guess so. So far, I haven't changed much. (laughs) I'm just uh, really in between literature and filmmaking Mm. and uh, switch off on and off these kind of double identities. She grew up in a fishing village in Shitang, which is south of Shanghai. That became the inspiration for a lot of your work. You used the word brutal when describing it in a talk that I watched. How so? Well, I was born in the early 70s, so it's kind of end of cultural revolution in China. But uh, I think my memories of this village life, you know, along the, the coast, East China Sea, was kind of a combination of feudal tradition, very traditional, almost primitive, you know, illiterate kind of surrounding, and then kind of rigid communist style. So I was growing up with my grandparents who were fishermen. Mm. We had a boat, but we live in we lived in this very kind of rigged uh, kind of lot a lot of typhoon storm from May to November, I remember. So almost like four or five months, we are under this constant attack of the, the storms. And then after the typhoon season, there was no more roof left. Goodness. You said in the village a lot of people were illiterate, your grandparents included. Um, so becoming the poetic wordsmith that you are today, how did you find you know, this love of of words and stories if it wasn't necessarily around you? I think the early years, the early several years was just uh, soaking in that village, you know, non-cultural environment, but a different kind of culture, more like rural, physical, battled with, yeah, with, with the storm and the landscape. And I think that was, you know, translated into another kind of language, which is more literary, artistic language. When I was in the middle school or high school, when I came to a bigger town mm. after leaving my grandparents in the village. So I came to a bigger town where my mother and father worked. Mm. And suddenly I was in a school, you know, wear the school uniforms. And I realized this is a completely different life away from the coast village life, which is more industry. My mother worked in a factory. My father worked as a state painter in a studio, Mm -hmm. which he produced every day, the propaganda art, you know, with big posters. Mm. And it's a life of really urban construction, the very beginning of the urban construction. 
and I think was, I guess, very interesting for me, but also just a transition from a rural child to a, a schoolgirl, you know, receiving the culture education. Did your father inspire you with the ink painting? Because you studied that as well, didn't you? Yeah, it was um, so important, you know, how really the family is really almost like a stamp of your 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 future, you know, life, you know, from early childhood. Um, in the beginning, my father just basically painted, you know, every day in front of my brother and me. And I think when I was around 10, 11, we had to learn uh, calligraph from him every afternoon. I remember first we did a calligraph every afternoon after school, like around 4 or 5 p.m. And then I think me and my brother had to learn some kind of basic ink painting with brush and black ink on the rice paper. But I, I remember we were not allowed to use color. I think we would just use three types of black ink, dry ink, watery ink, and a media, media <laughs> kind of ink. So there's three colors. For me, you know, for a little child, I thought, well, there are no colors. And my father said, that's an incredible amount of color, you know, three kind of black. <laughs> wow. So I remember... I, for years, we were trained to do those ink painting, you know, but basic stuff, rocks, mm. mountains, Chinese ink painting without human characters in it. Mm. And your mum was quite a creative soul as well, wasn't she? My mother was a combination of a really rural peasant and a factory worker. You know, I think her generation is very typical. She was born in the 1940s. All her family was rice farmers before they suddenly had to transit into a, a kind of very urban factory life. And uh, my mother said, you know, she could barely write her name, but she had to learn in the evening school after her silk factory life. So you can call that creative. She Because she's kind of was a product of that time, you know, 40, 60 70s, you know, really the, the transition of China from very rural landscape to the urban landscape. Mm. Moving into your adolescence, this is when you started to really get into poetry. Yeah, so that was 1980s. I was still in the high school before I left for Beijing. And during the high school year, 80s, um, there was huge... Uh, poetry literary movement in China called a misty poetry movement really? and with, with amazing young beautiful young poets and writers who wrote those poems without any kind of propaganda political slogan in it because we grew up in the 70s you know we wrote with very revolutionary slogans and language in our composition yeah. and then suddenly I think this literary movement was very inspired from American Beat Generation, Allen Ginsberg, or you know, or just uh, Kerouac that that generation, to have this daily language, even though we learn that language from translation, mm. you know, rather than any original English language. So, I remember I was very much kind of influenced by reading those lines from um, Sylvia Plath without really understanding, you know, her death motif, but just those very personal, intimate lines. Mm. And then, of course, you know, I think Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg was always very important for my generation because suddenly the sentence doesn't have to be historically relevant, you know, just talk about your own personal desire, what do you see in the street? And then from the poetry, 
you decided film would be your calling. What led you to that decision? When did you sort of move from poetry towards, I'm going to go for it with film? It took you two tries, but you secured one of seven spots at the country's only film school, the Beijing Film Academy. Right. In the 80s, um, almost I remember everyone, every cultured person I met, they were poet. It's funny because everyone in China at that time, you know, if you're an intellectual, you wrote poem, but modern poems. And then I began to write short stories. And then I think it was, I was 17, 18, 19, I thought, well, I could write already, I could write story because also I was published then in a state magazine or the literary magazine. So I was a bit like, uh, should I you know, go to university, study something I sort of know a bit, or should I study something completely new to everybody? And at that time, of course, filmmaking was like an incredible avant-garde thing you could do in the early 90s or end of the 1980s, right? Still, video camera was very unheard. You know, you really use kind of film camera at that time. So I thought, wow, if I could be a film person, film director, and I remember everyone said, but that's really absurd. You know, no one have seen a film camera, you know, a movie <laughs> camera. Uh, no one had a, a still camera either that time in my in my hometown. Yeah. But I thought I would be quite avant-garde if I'm the only one <laughs> go to film school to learn how to make film. And I barely watched any film then, you know, maybe just mainly some Russian revolutionary films mm. and uh, a few, you know, Chinese really communist revolutionary films. But I was very curious about filmmaking. So then I started to read everything about cinema mm. and I wanted to go to film school in the 90s. What was it like going from a small village to a big city? It was immense. But I think, you know... Perhaps a young person will say the same if they grew up in a little village in Ticino, you know, going to Zurich would be like hugely. The excitement was really just suddenly in Beijing Film Academy. I think immediately we were somehow taught to study. I remember Alan Hene, Hiroshima Mamu, first week, and then second week, introduction to Jean-Luc Godard. I remember now fast really understood because there's no subtitles in their film, you know, in the film school. So those were just some kind of tapes, videotapes. And then there's a teacher who knows French, and he would be standing there by the videotape and then just kind of simultaneously translating into Chinese, you know. And then we didn't understand who was speaking in the film. <laughs> just our, you know, teacher, you know, mumbling some lines. That was the first four years study really European cinema. I guess you'd have to study even harder as well, wouldn't you? Because of the the whole language thing too, you know, it's a lot to grasp. And then um, a scholarship happened next. You went on to study documentary directing at the National Film and Television School in the UK and you moved to London. So how was that transition? Yeah. Was it a shock to the system? You you know, people say the word culture shock when you you move somewhere else. Um, Was it a culture shock for you when you first arrived? I mean, definitely. Culture shock is slightly strange concept because in a way we don't have shock because we are, we have been merged in those cinema, television, you know, drama, you know, from Britain, from US. So it's almost like familiar. I think the shock is somehow the reality wasn't like the film, the TV drama, the books we read, you know, from, from those source country, you know, US or Britain, I think was almost like um, enabled you to live in your 
old identity. You know, that's that's the the feeling I first have. I think first three years is loss of the identity as a Chinese writer, as as a a, a Chinese woman, as as a foreign artist. You know, mm. I was not a writer or artist in any way. I was a human being without adopting a new language yet. So your life become very, very basic, almost primitive, just coping with finding a street and pronounce a name properly, make people understand, you know, this very primitive foreigner's life for the first three years, you know. I remember I came, arrive in the Heathrow airport. I, I couldn't pronounce Heathrow. I thought it was Heathrow, O-W. And then I wrote that in my diary, you know, so this airport, where, which which direction I go. I was writing those diary and then every day finding different hostel. And the diary becomes slightly more narrative with strange broken English mixed with Chinese words in my diary. And I think immediately I thought this is quite interesting. You know, after about three, four months, I thought that could be a narrative book. And I remember eight months later, you know, I had this kind of four-letter diary. I was transcribed every day into into laptop. And uh, when I was transcribing from my diary, it, at the same time I prolonged my sentence from the diary to the laptop, developed a little bit of characters each day mm. during the transcription time period. And I remember, I think already in October, I came to the UK in April, and then in October I already had this kind of really book-length diary. I couldn't call it what, you know. But then I thought oh, this could be some narrative in it. And then I just based on that diary developed. And I think second year I thought, oh, I have to stay until I really finish this book. Yeah. And as a Chinese writer going from ideogram to English, how challenging was that? Because, you know, I've seen in many interviews you say, you know, I'm, English is my second language. So you're you're constantly translating, aren't you? I think in the beginning I thought I was doing the verbal translation you know, when I write or when I, when I even make film in the West. But then later on I realized actually it's not a sort of, you know, literary verbal translation. What I'm doing all these years is kind of self-translation and cultural translation. I think it's a complicated process of self-translate and cultural translate during the verbal process. Mm. And also, you know, because I don't, I didn't switch from Swedish to English or, or Italian to French. I switched from pictorial language, which is called the Chinese, to a European language. And that gap is really huge, you know, pictorial yeah. language to alphabetic language. The thought from images to basically alphabetical order is very different. I do not understand that transition yet, <laughs> but uh, I try to describe <laughs> And your novels have been translated into 28 different languages. And again, this is something that I saw when I was doing my research, that you actually have quite a, you know, a good continuing working relationship with your translators so that they can draw the true essence out of your stories as well. I really hope, you know, I could know more the translators of, you know, for my foreign editions. But sometimes strange, you know, some translator prefer to be private, working their own way out until they finish the book. But uh, I think I think it would be effective. You know, a writer-translator has a close relationship. Mm. This is, again, something I'm going to pull from an interview. You said that when it comes to your craft as a filmmaker, whether it's documentary films, essay films and fiction films, 
Um, you said the language goes beyond linguistic background, and that is because of the universal narrative of human stories. And I just thought that was poetry. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I think a lot of, you know, say non-Glophone writers, you know, would I mean, like including me, you know, would always insist, okay, our language is different, our cultural identity is different. So that, that we kind of insist the difference first, but then I, after being really living in different countries and cultures and working with different language, not only for my novels but also for my films, I think you can't always use that as excuse in a way because mm. human narratives are so similar. Yeah. And when you have lived in different culture, I actually lived in Germanic culture for some years, Zurich and Berlin, because my right residence and teaching position in Germanic world mm. and then in of course in in England and in New York you know for teaching and then lived in Paris for two years because um, filmmaking in you know, different cultures and also I wrote in di different language so I guess for me I realized it's all about you know go beyond your cultural identity but use that as kind of device or almost like the key to open this universal narrative. As long as I live as an immigrant, I really need to make myself understood in different languages. Mm. I have to ask you about She, a Chinese. I know this one's really important to you. Is it, was it almost autobiographical? With She, a Chinese, I realized it's really a film about coming of age and go beyond your cultural background, you know, so it's about this girl leaving China. Yes, I I gone through similar experience. But I think she's more in the film she's more like a symbolic youth. And I remember, you know, how I got in, very inspired from Jean Luc Godard's uh, La Chinoise he made in nineteen sixty seven because his commentary on the Chinese cultural revolution was passionate, was positive. And uh, for me as a daughter of the father who were in Cultural Revolution camp for more than 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. I don't have similar kind of opinion. So I wanted to make kind of opposite kind of remark, almost like a homage in a different way to Godard to comment on that. But it's not direct commentary. So I want to check out, you know, so what if from Maya's, Lashinoa's leaving village and coming to the West to check out capitalism, what, what it was like. And that is not a... Uh, exactly literary translation of my own life. It's more about the commentary, kind <laughs> of teasing, you know, uh, uh, forever Jean-Luc Godard in our cultural life in a way. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, other very important film influence for my film, Shi Chinese, was really Gus Van Sant. I mean, the two films, you know, from, from that time, you know, My Own Private Article and Midnight Cowboy, they were my, <laughs> yeah. they were my favorite films because I think the youth experience you know, coming from you know, they, they were from Middle West America, tried to go to a big city. And I'm um, just, a, you know, a little village girl coming to a big city, whether in China or in the West. It's such a similar physical pain and a beauty. You know, the journey is really physical and mental. So I, that's why I say it's, it's beyond personal, the film. You mentioned my own private Idaho, so I'm immediately thinking of Udo Kier and then him being in your, your feature, UFO in her eyes, and that must have been a great moment then, <laughs> working exactly. with Udo. I think I didn't know Udo Kier much later. You know, I was watching all these American indie films 
and uh, Gus Vincent, and you know, until when I was making my feature UFO in her eyes with German production, ZDF, an arty German, and uh, I think I I have to I had a base in Hamburg in North Germany to make this film, even though the whole film was shot in China, so I had to work with German actors, with German production team, and then they were recommending a few actors and I first saw the face and the blue eyes of Udo Kier mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I thought wow yes he is quite alien quite interesting yeah, yeah. He, he was sat in that chair two days ago yeah he's he's an, in the series too and he is a character <laughs> he's definitely for me I think he was the first foreign actor I well non-Chinese actor I worked with so plus you know he he flew all the way from Hollywood and for me it was so strange in a way I'm just a village filmmaker of course I was working with the European film team that's just because the budget the the funding had to have that structure you know but on but I'm really a a village Chinese filmmaker you know and then suddenly a big star from Hollywood you know and he only had something like three days contract which made me very kind of worried and stressed you know how could we you know fit in everything in three days you know yet we've been living here filming forever but that's the schedule in the, in the western legal system right so yeah. i but he was extremely flexible and a very improvised person so it's quite amazing mm. how difficult is it existing in both the western and chinese worlds do you think that you strike that balance i don't know if i have found a balance I, it's, I just, I think for some years, uh, f- you know, until now I give up the idea I would have a lot of different audience, you know. I guess now, you know, Anglophone language is sort of my first, you know, the last 10, 15 years, that's the language I work with, you know, with my book and my film. Mm. I felt... As long as somehow I don't feel I betray that that kind of daily reality, then I am with myself, you know. Mm. But like I can't show my film in China, and then my book's not translated back. Do you think there are enough migrant voices in literature and film? I don't think we should have, you know, for <laughs> political correctness, we you know we include all the artwork for that. I think they should be good first, you know. I think. You know, I think it's amazing because Europe is in the front frontier of receiving the migrants and refugees every day, because of the the, the close the frontier to to yeah. other world, right, to yeah. Africa, to Asia. So you have this exposure every second. You know, it's very different from other continent, right, mm. other countries. And of course, now, you know, we ask the <laughs> the Europeans to have more understanding of otherness in a way. You know. But how do we do it? If we don't have personal connection, then we had to use cinema, literature, right, to yeah. to to go further and deeper, and then hopefully we have much more personal context from that. When you were asked the question, "Where is home?", you said you feel most at home when you are storytelling. Yes, and that's very good way to sum up where I belong because I think in the first 10 years after I left China I really felt this kind of homeless stateless you know as an artist writing second language making film in the country I don't really know its culture and history you know I felt very kind of out of place you know and, uh, and then and then now almost 20 years living in Europe I felt I found a system which suits me very well in you know, writing novels, making films in my own kind of system, 
And my ambition is very different. You know, I don't have ambition to conquer some mainstream industry. You know, so my own ambition is a very personal one, private one. Is do the beautiful work, which suits me. You know, these mm. years, you know, drifting around in Europe. So that's my home, as you said. Mm. You've got such an inspiring story, Shalu Gore. Thank you so much for talking to us. We've got one final thing to do, and that's roll your closing credits. What movie have you watched most in your life, and why? I think a lot of Jean-Luc Godard's films, Pierre Lefort, one of my favorite, and lots of Agnes Varda films. Well, if you could pick one, if you had the Piazza Grande to yourself with your friends, what movie would you most like to watch on that ginormous screen? I would say Pierre Lefort by Jean-Luc Godard. You're directing a movie about your life. What would the opening and closing scenes look like? I would think it's landscape.、Hmm. If you could create a new category of award at the Locarno Film Festival, what would it be, and who would you give it to? That's difficult. Probably, I would create a section called "The Honor and the Pride of Being Losers." <laughs> I'd imagine you don't want to say who you'd give that to. <laughs> to myself. <laughs> okay.、Uh, what are your hopes for the future of film festivals? Really, I think the I really hope the film festival continues forever with new energy, you know, and unstoppable funding. That's very important, and、uh, this reputation, wonderful reputation and trust between the industry and the filmmakers should continue forever.、Mm. Is today's art shaping society as it should? I don't have the illusion. Say, you know, in the nineteen fifties, sixties. Sartre's time, you know, the French intellectuals, sort of like on the frontier of the political change. I don't think we had that now at all. So art is being sabotaged by the commercial machine in a way. But maybe grassroots movement in the societies could change that.、Mm. Well, that kind of answers the next question, which is what can art and cinema do to improve people's lives? Maybe it's back to the grassroots. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. What, in your opinion, is the biggest challenge today for cinema and culture? I guess we need to really be careful with the monophone, monoculture, in cinema, in art. But then, of course, you know, Europe is doing very well. You know, to have multiple identities. You know, introduce very different voices, but not in other places. Maybe you know, beyond Europe, I'm not sure. You know how multicultural you know things can be in art in in cinema. Right. Last but by no means least, as the Locarno Film Festival is all about freedom, do you feel free? Of course, freedom is illusion. You know, been discussing that since humanity, or you know, or at least you know, I think six thousand years. It's something in your head, and I think it's like a chess game. You know, if you want to participate, you you have to make a move. Shallow God, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Future Perspectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support Future Perspectives with your review and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. This series is created and produced by Brand Audio Media.